The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right. Um, I think we'll probably have the screen here in a moment, but if you're looking at your packet, just a very quick review of the last couple things that we've said as we get ready for today. Um, we said that God gives his people regular means of grace for living in a world marked by suffering as we await our future with Christ. So we've said that suffering is a reality. It's part of the fallen world in which we live, but that does not mean that it's outside of God's control or purposes. And in the midst of that, God is very gracious and kind and generous in providing what we need to endure. And he does that in his word. He does that in prayer. He does that through the body of Christ. And so we're not left alone to suffer, but we are given many regular means of grace for enduring, for persevering, for growing in Christ in the midst of suffering. And then um, last time we commented on God's empathy. Uh, God's empathy to his suffering people is demonstrated by his merciful character and the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we look to Jesus, um, not only do we have one who has made atonement and provided uh, forgiveness for sins, but one who in so doing suffered and is therefore sympathetic to us, that being made like us in every way, being tempted in every way, yet without sin, he is a merciful and faithful high priest. He sympathizes with his people. And so not only is he our atoning sacrifice, he is also a perfect model of what it looks like to suffer in a godly way. And so we, we were very careful to say that what is central to the gospel is Jesus' substitutionary death. We don't want to lose sight of what he accomplished on the cross in terms of atoning for sin, but we also want to turn that diamond and see the other facets of it, one of which is Jesus as a model for us, a sympathetic uh, model for us in his priesthood. And that sets us up for today as we think about ways not to react in suffering. If we look to Jesus and see one who suffered well in every way, then we need to be on guard against ways where we might not do that. We do best when we set our minds on the goal, not all the obstacles. Hebrews 12:2, thinking about Jesus again as a model, this kind of picks it up in the middle of the sentence, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you see Jesus' spiritual gaze, as it were, set on the joy before him, and that leading to the endurance of the cross, even despising the shame of it. So we, too, in having that spiritual gaze that we talked about a couple weeks ago, we need to set our minds on the goal, future glory in and with Christ, and not to be so consumed with the obstacles in our path that we lose sight of where we're going. It's kind of like, uh, maybe we talked about this a few weeks ago, I don't remember, uh, like with, with potholes in the road, you need to be aware of the obstacles that are in your way, but I can remember when I was learning to drive, whether it was my parents or a driving instructor, one of the things they kept coaching me in is constantly looking 
far ahead of you. You're in a vehicle that's traveling 25, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour maybe. You need to, yes, have an awareness of what's right in front of you, but you also need to keep an eye on, on where you're going. If your gaze is fixed just on the pothole in front of you, not only are you not going to see all the obstacles that are still out there, you need to look down the road to see those too, but you may lose sight of where you're actually headed. And so we want to have an eye towards the goal that's in front of us as we navigate the obstacles in our way. And we're going to consider some of those today because suffering can include temptations to lose sight of who God is and what he is like. We're not going to read Psalm 73. I think I had referenced this in the last week or two, the psalmist, you know, reflecting on the apparent successes of the wicked and his own suffering, and he was given to despair. And it wasn't until he kind of had his perspective reoriented on the person and faithfulness of God that he had a view clear to see what the future of these things is. He's wrestling with the difficulties of his situation compared with what appears to be ease for the unrighteous. And it was the character of God that helped him to see the actual truth of the situation. But suffering can come with temptations to lose sight of those things. Suffering can also reveal the disconnect between the theology that we profess and the theology that we practice. I would say in, in moments where maybe I'm, I'm not very keenly aware or maybe just a, it's a especially gracious time and kind time of the Lord to me where I'm not going through um, you know, very painful trials you can get to the place, I think, where you're very confident in what you believe about the Lord. Um, and you could wax, I'll say I, could wax eloquently on the sovereignty of God and, you know, the gospel. Maybe even say true things about suffering. But what you actually believe, your theology and practice, is going to come out as you are tried and tested. That's, that's what's driving our hopes and our fears and our actions. And so we will find out things about ourselves and what we believe when we are tried, when we are pressed, those things will come to the surface. And if we see a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we find ourselves actually believing, there's, uh, there, there's room for repentance. There's room for growth. And the potential for responding to suffering in a sinful or unbiblical way calls for watchfulness in the midst of spiritual warfare. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So if that's the spiritual reality that we're living in, an enemy who would seek to devour us, then watchfulness is one key way in which we need, to, we need to be attentive to that, attentive to watchfulness. Maybe that's a little redundant. But one way to be watchful um, is to be aware of ways in which we might sin, in which we're suffering. We will be tempted. I think the, the enemy knows areas in which we are weak and will target areas of weakness. So one of the things in being spiritually watchful is knowing where your fence is low, knowing 
what your tendencies are, knowing where you are prone to sin, and being watchful of yourself in the midst of spiritual warfare. So we need to be aware of ways in which we might sin in our suffering and therefore be prayerful and careful to guard against them. That doesn't mean that this is our own strength at work. This is the power and the help of God. You know, we've, we've said several times in here the idea of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you to accomplish his good will. So it is the strength and help that God provides, but we need to take what he is equipping with us and put those things to use in guarding against sin and pursuing righteousness. And so the remainder of our time today is really considering, I think it's five different ways in which we might respond to suffering in a sinful way and think about where that comes from and how we guard against that. So one potential unbiblical response is what we might call practical atheism, living as if God didn't exist. It's not that we would deny the existence of God. We just do things like, you know, trying to have the stiff upper lip, trying to grin and bear it, trying to tough it out, relying on our own strength and wisdom, keeping our struggles to ourselves, not being humble and admitting where we're weak or sinning. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a good passage to address that that reminds us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. There is a tendency, or there at least can be a tendency, in suffering to trust in our own understanding and not lean on the Lord's. And while we wouldn't say, yeah, I, presently I don't believe in God, our actions would indicate we are living as if his grace and his power is not sufficient for us. So living as if God didn't, doesn't exist is what we might call practical atheism. Again, that's the idea of a disparity between the theology that you profess and the theology that you practice. You can say you're trusting in the Lord all day long, but if you're living as if you don't, what use is that? We must battle then self-reliance by pursuing humility. We saw in Jesus in Philippians 2 the humility of the Lord, and we're told in many places in Scripture about the importance of forsaking pride, pursuing humility and meekness. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And Galatians 6.2 reminds us that this is not a solo act. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. i got to confess to you all, even this morning, I was guilty of this kind of attitude. You could probably hear it in my voice. I'm kind of nasally. I've been sick and getting over a cold. I think all of us at the office have, more or less. And uh, Jeremy has had it really bad lately, and he's struggling with his voice. He's all medicated up, and he's concerned about preaching and baptizing today. And I told him, ah, you got this. And that sounds harmless, but I've been thinking about it, like, None of us got this. 
There, there is that underlying attitude of tough it out. You'll be all right. You can get through it. If we were 100% perfectly healthy, that would not be true. And it's especially untrue on a day like today where we're more aware of our weakness. And so I see this even in my own life, even today, that tendency towards work it out, toughen up, stiff upper lip, you got this, and that is untrue. So we need to be people constantly aware of our cares and anxieties, bringing them to the Lord in prayer, humbly, sharing those things with other people. People can't help us bear our burdens if they don't know what they are to bear. So it takes honesty and humility in battling this tendency towards self-reliance. And since we can't refine our own faith, we should remind ourselves how little we have control over our lives and trust in God's promise that he is working for our good as we live and act with the strength that he provides. So Philippians 2, 12 and 13, that's coming on the heels of a passage about Christ's humility. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then in 1 Peter 4, 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we want to be careful not to become complacent or fatalistic on the one hand, as if we have no responsibility in our Christian walk, especially as we think about repentance of sin and pursuing righteousness even in the midst of suffering. You can err by saying, well, if it's God who works in me most to will and to do for his good pleasure, then I guess I just kind of sit here and I'm just kind of a backseat passenger, and the Lord's getting me to the destination, and I'm just, you know, my life's on cruise control. We don't want to become complacent or fatalistic on the one hand. The opposite end of that is trying to take the reins and assume that the strength and the energy and the will is ours to produce change, to grow in Christ. So there is neither independence nor complacency that fits with what we're talking about today. And I think Peter captures that well in 1 Peter 4.19. He says, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Before we move on from practical atheism, any thoughts or questions, experiences, observations on the tendency to live as if God were not there. Independence and complacency, I think, would be kind of the two ditches that we're talking about avoiding. One is living as if I don't need God. I've got it all together. The other is living as if I actually have no responsibility before God with what he has given to me.
Yeah. Um, the, I think, I, I, if we, as we go through all five, I don't know if you'll find any of these that are particularly uh, true of you. Maybe multiple ones. I think at, at some time or other, I'm sure I have been guilty of all five of these things uh, and more. This is certainly not an exhaustive list, but it's a, and it, this one is an especially insidious one because the Bible is very frank with us that without faith it is impossible to please God, and everything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And so if we are living in a way that practically denies the existence and power of God on our behalf, then what could we be doing that is actually pleasing to the Lord? It's a, it's a frightening thing to consider that with our words we can be affirming truth, but with our lives completely denying it. Yeah, no, and that's not to say. Oh, so you're asking if that kind of attitude is practical atheism? Um, I, I don't know. I might have to hear a little bit more about the particular situation. But let me tell you, like, here's one example. I've heard uh, the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not in the Bible. That is not true. I think if you've walked with the Lord long enough, you've probably experienced a whole lot of things that you absolutely cannot handle. And that's a good thing to know, that I do not have it in me to handle all this. It's sort of a, a reworking of the idea that we won't be tempted beyond what we can bear, but that in those temptations, God will pri provide a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. That verse is teaching us that sin is not required in trials and temptations. You can't sin in a temptation and go, well, that's all I could do. That's not true. We don't have to sin. In Christ, the power of sin is broken. We actually are liberated by the Spirit of God to please God, and he shows us the way of escape. That does not mean that we are equipped just to handle everything that comes our way. I think we frequently come to the end of our rope, and that's not a bad thing. Kind of like with my comment to Jeremy this morning, it's unfortunate, at least in my life, that I, I tend to be more aware of that. Maybe it's not unfortunate. Maybe this is just the providence of God. But I think we tend to be more aware of how short our rope is when we are suffering. Do you see that? When there is relative ease, it's, it's easier to think that, oh, all these plates I'm juggling, I got this. You don't, you didn't have it when things were easy. That was still the Lord. We become more keenly aware of that, our inability when we are suffering. And so in, in that case, I would say that's actually a good thing to recognize my own frailty, my own weakness, my own dependence. I personally am more aware of that when I feel the weight of the trials. Does that answer your question?
Yeah, and I hope that the this one and the, the at least the next two will help us kind of see this from two different sides in our own lives. Okay, so I need to guard against areas where I'm practically living as if either God doesn't exist or if he does, I don't need him. We want to guard against that. We also want to have our eyes open to where our brothers and sisters may be tempted to believe those lies. And that will ultimately require speaking, but speaking of a different nature than like Job's friends, for example. So this is a, this is a mirror, first of all, but then it's also meant to be an aid for others so that both the words that we're hearing and the words that we're saying are being used for good and edification. Yes, ma'am. Just hang in there. Um, again, like, yeah. I'm sure I've said it. That was basically what I told Jeremy today. Was was just hang in there. Well, if you told somebody that, what would, what, what do you think would be your intention behind that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... I, the reason I picked on me is because I knew what was in my heart when I said that. You'll be all right, Jeremy. Toughen up. We've all had a cold. You can, you can do it. You can do it. The, the heart behind it was you can do it. And my, my point in analyzing that is you can't do it. And even if you were feeling 100%, you can't do it. Because it's God's word you're proclaiming. I mean, what we are asking the Lord to do on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis is to take his word and drive it into our hearts in such a way that we become more like Jesus. And Jeremy or Michael or me or anybody else at our very best with a year to prepare a sermon, feeling 100% could make absolutely no progress in doing that. 
I'm more aware of my inability to do that when I feel like I do today. But hang in there is bad advice when you actually feel the strength in your hands to hang in there. You know what I mean? Because Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. We're being held. We're being kept. We're, we're not doing the keeping. Any keeping that we are doing is the keeping power of God empowering that in us. Now, that's not to say that anytime, you know, we, we might hear or say one of those things that may be innocuous, that we have to go, wait a second, time out, heresy alert. Um, but we do need to be on guard at, as to what's in our hearts and coming, coming out of our mouths in ministry to other people. And it may reveal subtle things that maybe in this area I have been relying on my own strength. And my confidence in that is revealed when my strength or my awareness of my strength is taken away. And then I go, oh man, this is really hard. Preaching a sermon when you don't feel good or teaching a Sunday school class when you don't feel good is hard. If you're not aware of the weight of responsibility that comes with preaching and teaching, for example, or whatever it is you're doing in the name of Jesus, if you're not aware of your need for him when you are feeling strong, he may bring weakness to you to wake you up to that. Um, that happened to me this morning. Unbiblical response number two, running to false gods. Y'all, excuse me, I got a cough drop in. <clears throat> we can look for relief in all manner of things like cough drops. We can look for relief in all manner of ways, including various addictions and distractions. I thought this was kind of insightful. This was not my original idea. Did I, did I make a typo? Yep. Y'all, Isaiah is such a long book. We're not going to read all of chapter 301. Isaiah 30, 1 to 3. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your, your humiliation. There you see God's people... And this is not the first time in the Old Testament with that tendency to kind of look back over their shoulders to Egypt and think, we had it better there. And how different are we when facing trials, temptations, when we look to worldly things for comfort and for relief? It could be like actual addictions, drugs, alcohol, sex. It could be abandoning relationships. It was better when I didn't have all these Christians looking at my life and wanting me to follow Jesus. So neglecting the body of Christ could be in shopping, it could be in food, it could be in workaholism. There's any number of things that we might retreat into looking for relief. We might look for comfort from a false God so that we don't have to deal with the true God about our suffering, about our sin. For the Israelites were looking to Egypt again 
rather than to, to the Lord. And there may be any number of Egypts that we're looking over our shoulder at for relief and for help. And ultimately, we'll find that those things don't satisfy. Oh, in Revelation? Yeah. Um, I think you could, you could apply that here. Yeah. Say that again, Timothy. It's one of the million reasons why we need each other. If you're driving by yourself, who's going to help correct you when you're going off into the ditch? Maybe the guardrail or the ditch that you crash into? I mean, Personally, I would rather have someone with me to keep me alert with my eyes on the road. We need one another. And so that's one of the things that we can be on guard against and help our brothers and sisters be on guard against. If you have someone who has gone through, especially a very intense tragedy, watch for your and for their connection to and involvement with the body of Christ. That, that can be an early warning sign that things are not right when we retreat from the people of God. Mm -hmm. Well, sure, because to use the driving metaphor, intense suffering that's like a monsoon of rain on your windshield. You have added obstacles in your way that can blur your vision. And it need, you need brothers and sisters to help you see your path ahead clearly. It's probably good advice if you're going through something really intense like that. You probably don't need to make a lot of big decisions right then. You need patience and wisdom. You need the help of God's people because of our tendency to look away from the Lord and to look to other things. Yeah. I don't know what reminded me of this. Rebecca tells this story a lot. For y'all who have been around Emmanuel for a while, you remember Bob and Sarah Joe Brown. And after Sarah Joe died, Bob was at church on Sunday. I think we were observing the Lord's Supper that day. He was a deacon, and he was there serving the church. And we both remember that of thinking how easy it would have been having your spouse just pass away to, yeah, I just, I'm not feeling it today. I think I'm going to stay home. And that, we, we remember that, not only that he was there, but that he came and served us. Um, and so our need for one another is perhaps intensified when there are trials and suffering 
And so an early warning sign might be a person's withdrawal. Um, okay, number three, try to pick up the pace here. Thinking we deserve better. How American is that? We can be tempted to a prosperity gospel mindset that thinks we've made a deal with God that if, he, if we follow him, he'll reward us with comfort. So you can look at your suffering and go, well, this isn't what I signed up for. I signed up for the joy and the happiness gospel. I signed up for the treasure on earth and in heaven gospel. I, you know, I signed up for the Jesus healing the blind and sick gospel. This isn't what I signed up for. So we can think that we deserve better. And that may be evident if our response to suffering is despairing, when we despair, wondering if our faith is deficient or that we are not good enough. So if the prosperity gospel is telling you, well, if you just have enough faith, then things will work out well for you. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Then you look at your life, and maybe you're not feeling particularly healthy, wealthy, and wise. Then you can despair going, well, I guess my faith isn't good enough. My faith isn't strong enough. My faith isn't big enough. And what you have done then is made your faith, faith in yourself. And that's not faith in the Lord. My faith isn't big enough. My faith isn't strong enough. That's making uh, us the object of our faith. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Where are you? Ah, there we go. Thank you, Tommy. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Inevitably, when things happen to me, it's like I, I need to hear this verse every day. I'm like, something strange is happening to me, Lord. I don't feel good today. I, I don't feel like I have it all together. My kids aren't listening to me. I was short with my wife. What's happening to me? Don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So whether it's suffering for following Christ, or any number of other trials and sufferings. You know, James says there are trials of various kinds. We can think that we deserve better, and we can be surprised when those things happen to us, as if we're not told to be prepared for them. Um, if suffering is the reality, we can end up angry at God if our practical theology is one of ease and prosperity in this life. That what we might call an over-realized eschatology. What we want in the present is actually what we're promised in the future. And if you, if you want to claim all of those promises now, your eschatology is over-realized, and you will end up despairing and angry at God, and you will shipwreck your faith because you will have made it about you. And so those are things that we can also be on guard against, where you see somebody angry at God, where you see yourself angry at God, it may be revealing a heart that thinks, well, I deserve better. I'm a good person. I believe in Jesus. This shouldn't be happening to me. It could also lead to legalism. We, um, 
I think this was shared in Camille's testimony um, when we had our member meeting recently. She was under prosperity teaching, and in the aftermath of that, she found herself doing all sorts of works to try to clear her conscience and feel like her faith was up to snuff. And you will never get out of that hole. She kept digging, and the hole just kept getting deeper. And she ended up in a place of great despair. And it was a result of teaching that was telling her, if you just are good enough and are generous enough and work hard enough and your faith is big enough, then things will be fine for you. And things were not fine for her. In fact, her awareness of them getting worse is what was growing. And it ended up leaving her confused and angry and praise the Lord that he's brought her to the place she is now. But that is, that is an odious teaching that leads to all kinds of error if we think that we deserve better than what we're getting from the Lord. A fourth unbiblical response is thinking that God can't help. Um, there is a, a false belief system known as open theism that you may have heard of before. Open theism asserts that God can't predict future events, that he, does not, that he is not omniscient. His knowledge of the future is incomplete because he does not know what people are going to do. Uh, open theists might claim that God can know some things, but he can't know all things, and therefore he is unable to predict the future. Here is a quote from an open theist. Decisions not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known, even by God. They are potential, yet to be realized, but not yet actual. God can predict a great deal of what we will choose to do, but not all of it, because some of it remains hidden in the mystery of human freedom. The God of the Bible displays an openness to the future that the traditional view of omniscience simply cannot accommodate. What would you say to that? Okay. Go with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus can tell you what would have happened if something else had happened. I thought about, you know, from having been in Samuel for so long, um, David fleeing to the city and asking if the people were going to deliver him, and God was like, yeah, they're going to deliver you up. And so he gets out of there, right? So we have specific examples from the Bible that that is just untrue. Um, I've got uh, a couple verses. I mean, the list of things that we could have said are, uh, are extensive. But the person made the quote that the God of the Bible does not have complete knowledge. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will, comp I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 139, 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. 
all together. So, whatever God the open theists are claiming to believe in is not God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, who does claim omniscience, who does claim to know what would have happened in situations. So, not only does he know the outcomes of things that have not yet happened, he knows what would have happened had there been different outcomes already. He has a complete and total omniscience. And not only does he have the omniscience, um, he has the power to accomplish what his purposes are. So, it is one thing to say, I know everything. It is another thing to say, I have the power to accomplish what I want to do, and that is going to be what happens. So we pair those things together, and we see not only are the open theists wrong, but this is not a lesson on open theism. This is guarding against our own sinful tendencies to think that God can't help us. So if we doubt God's knowledge, or if we doubt God's wisdom, or if we doubt God's sovereignty, or if we doubt God's power, the temptation would be that we might live as if God is unable to do anything about our circumstances for our good. Can y'all think of what that might look like? Like just a practical example of how you might think God can't help you. Okay. Oh, so taking on debt as a reflection of your lack of trust in the Lord to provide for you? Okay. I think sometimes when there are situations that I don't understand, I talk as if God didn't understand them. And it's really just me projecting onto the Lord my own ignorance. I might say things like, I just have no idea what's going on. And really, I think what's in my heart is, God, do you have any idea what's going on? So, those things can be hard to detect in other people, let alone yourself. But I know in, in my own life the temptation to think that my own confusion or uncertainty about a situation reflects God's uncertainty or confusion about the situation. So we need to guard against the sinful tendency to think that God can't help. How do we do that? Well, we have to be anchored in the word of God, which promises us, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. We Sometimes I read Isaiah 46.10 as if it weren't good news. Because when God starts accomplishing his purpose in my life and the pain comes, I'm like, hmm, either the, something's wrong with the purpose or something's wrong with the one who's accomplishing his purpose. Either things are out of his control or maybe he's not good. Maybe he's not good for me. And that kind of takes us into our last one, doubting God's goodness to us. We may find that we wrestle with guilt, wondering if instead of acting for our good, God is punishing us for something that we have done wrong. 
if you find yourself or you hear a brother or sister going the route of God is punishing me, we need to go to Romans 8.1 and remember that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That Romans 8.1 is one of the central passages to this entire block on suffering. Because the lens that we look at our suffering through has got to be a biblical one. If, if we don't think that our guilt has been taken away by Christ, then it's very easy to see suffering as punishment. That God is taking out his wrath on us. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The point of Jeremy's sermon today from Isaiah 52 and 53 is Jesus' atonement for the guilt of our sin. There is no more wrath to absorb. There is no more guilt to punish. If we are in Christ, those things are taken away. So our suffering is not an expression of God's wrath towards us. That has been taken away. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8 reminds us of these things that come to us as a reflection not of God's wrath, but of his love. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So an antidote in doubting God's goodness to us and dealing with feelings of guilt that come is preaching the gospel to ourselves every day sitting under the ministry of the gospel, especially when we are in trials and we're tempted to think that we're being punished or that we're somehow under the wrath of God, that is maybe more serious than we would be initially thinking it is because what it's saying is Jesus died for my sins or maybe some of them, but I need to add to that. I've got some guilt to bear. I've got some wrath to bear. Apparently, Jesus didn't pay it all. Only some to him I owe. I got to contribute some payment to this. So it's really a very anti-gospel posture wrapped in maybe false humility. Kind of the woe is me attitude, feeling guilty. Behind that is a lack of trust in Christ's atoning work. We may also resign ourselves to God's plan reluctantly. Think about Jonah. Jonah, he's, he's an interesting person. You know, we all know the story. He runs away from the Lord and he ends up swallowed by a great fish and spit out on the land. And he's testifying to the enemies of God. They're going to be overthrown. And shocker, they repent, and God is gracious to them. And Jonah, who had just been shown great mercy and kindness and grace, goes, I knew you were going to do that. It's just like you, God. It's just like you to be full of steadfast love and merciful. And he sulks over the mercy of God. I wonder if we can go through the motions of the Christian life with hearts that are likewise 
reluctant and resentful. That, yeah, I'm just, I'm getting along. Just, you know, this is what God has for me, so here we are. This is how God is. We need to guard against the attitude that is resentful of God for what he brings to us. Because somewhere in there is doubting the character of God, doubting the goodness of God. We've said this before, but just to repeat real quickly, God uses the local church to help us see our situation more clearly, to look for areas of sin that need to be confessed and repented, and to be encouraged in our pursuit of the Lord in the midst of trials. So, listen to our um, call to confession today. That's kind of the angle in God's providence that we're taking in our uh, scriptural call to confession today. The sin of rejecting godly advice and counsel, not listening to correction. And the church is a primary means of the Lord in providing that kind of correction. Which is one reason, again, to repeat what we said a little bit ago, that withdrawal from the body of Christ is an early red flag. And lastly, we should test ourselves by asking if we really want to be made like Christ by the means that God intends. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I want to be careful here as we close and not say that simply having questions and struggling when we are facing trials just automatically means, okay, well, you're not a Christian, clearly. That's not what we're saying. It's what we're doing with those things. As we are aware of them, as our brothers and sisters around us help us see those things, what is it we're doing with them? Is, is our desire to put those things away and to pursue righteousness, not despite suffering, but even by means of it as God brings that to us? Or is it revealing a heart that really wants the benefits of following Christ for all eternity now? And if that's not the deal that God has made with me, then, then I'm out. We want to ask serious questions about ourselves, about our hearts. We want to help brothers and sisters around us ask those same questions. And where the Lord brings sin to our attention, we want to take it seriously. But we also want to take the gospel equally as seriously. That I can cling to with confidence, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so constantly bringing ourselves back to the gospel. What you don't want to do is to identify areas in your life or help a brother or sister identify areas in their life where they might be sinning in this way or you might be sinning in this way and then bring them at not the gospel as the solution to it. Oh, okay, so you think that you deserve better? Well, you don't, period. Or you think that God can't help you? Well, he can. Or you think that God's not good for you? Well, he is. What we actually want to do is say, in all those sins that you might be guilty of, in all those trials and temptations where your, your focus is shifted to yourself and away from the Lord, you, you have got to keep coming back to Jesus, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And the remarkable thing is the strength that turns our gaze 
from ourselves and back to the Lord is not ours. And because of God's promise that he is holding his people fast, we can have confidence that for his people, he grants repentance, that there will be that strength provided to turn and to trust. So this isn't, we don't want to come to the conclusion and say, well, you know, tighten your belts and get to work. It's the Lord has provided everything you need. He shows himself strong in your weakness. He has empowered us for life and for godliness. These are some ways in which we might be tempted to sin when we're tried. As we are aware of them, we can be more watchful of them and more prayerful to guard against them. But any strength that we have to pursue righteousness and to forsake these kinds of things is strength that's coming from him. So we've got to be relying on him for those things. So I think we may have said this in in so many words already, but it's avoiding the pitfalls, going back to maybe even the first one, of relying on ourselves. It's one of the easiest things to do when we're tried, and I think it may be especially true in a Western context, is that independence, I can do it mentality. Weakness reminds us, you never could do it. Praise the Lord if you're more keenly aware of the fact that you can't. Well, we'll close there. I think I've kept us over as usual. It is suffering after all, so you have to run late. Let's pray. Father, I certainly know in my own life my tendencies to live as if you weren't real, to live as if you weren't powerful or good or wise, to find comfort and solace in things that don't satisfy, and many more ways in which faithlessness in my flesh comes to bear in the ways that I react and interact with the sufferings and trials that you bring. Inasmuch as the time together today has reminded us of what we have and who we are in Christ, we're thankful. We're thankful for the strength that you provide to endure. We pray for a spirit of watchfulness to abound in our lives, not only for our own sake, but for our brothers and sisters. Help us to watch out for one another and bear one, another bur- one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We claim to love you only because you have first loved us and with the strength that you provide. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.